นโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามสามิเ
hope they're not going to get their pellet guns out again this year. But uh, they've got all sorts of little tricks, and and uh, I, I can feel annoyed um, by some of the things they get up to. And I could say, you know, those little brats are really annoying me. And I can feel that. But from a practice perspective, who's annoying me? Really? If we're really, if we're really there in our center, actually really alert, really feeling what's happening as it's happening, we have to admit that actually you know, we've got a choice. We don't actually have to get irritated. That's, that's, that's a great blessing, a, great, a, 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 a wonderful insight in practice to, to realize actually we don't have to grab a hold of the feelings and the reactions that we experience. We can't stop these things from arising. That would be a mistake. You need to try and not have certain feelings. Well, probably most of us, if not all of us, have made that mistake at some stage or other. I can't stand this feeling, so we try to stop having it. Rather than trying to have, stop having the feeling, change the way we have the feeling. And this is something we can observe, and as we discipline attention as we offer ourselves into the moment, recognizing that what we offer attention to is our choice, seeing we don't have to let our attention get caught up in all sorts of habitual tendencies of mind, realize that actually we are the authority in our lives. It's actually up to us how we have our experience. It's quite a frightening Realization, actually, because it kind of, you know, puts an end to blaming. It's, it's really rather difficult. It's embarrassing, actually, I find, to get caught up in blaming because, you know, to be honest, you realize that it's totally unfounded. And when we realize that, we say, well, actually, I really got my work cut out. And we have to make the effort to be as consistent as we can with our mindfulness, to be as present as we can, moment by moment, not just in our formal meditation, but in our daily life practice, so as to not get caught up in these things. And this really is what increases. It's the, what, what changes in practice is not that we stop having certain feelings, stop having certain reactions. I've been at this business for 27 years and I still have reactions that I was having 27 years ago, certain things, you know, like last night I was talking about my preoccupation with the interior of the retreat house. I mean, 27, 28 years ago I was on retreat in the forest of Australia with a lot more hair than I've got now and, and beautiful earrings and other things. And uh, I was totally preoccupied with designing tree houses. Uh, it was, it was a, painful preoccupation, just the same as yesterday. However, yesterday, I can assure you, I had a much freer perspective. The way that I deal with the tendencies of my mind is very different from the way that I dealt with them 27, 28 years ago. And so this is what we can look at changing. Now one of the questions that... um, 
there's a bunch of questions that have been offered this evening. One of them is, what is the relationship between psychological development and spiritual unfolding? Or, why do arahants have personalities? Now, I'm not quite sure why it says or, um, whether you only want one question commented on. They're both great questions, so I'm happy to comment on both of them. But right now, in, in what we're talking about, on this how we have something, I think this fits in very well with this thing of why do arahants have personalities? Now, that's a very good question. I, I can't say that I've ever sat down for a kind of heart-to-heart sharing with an arahant and said, how do you feel about your personality? <laughs> I, I would like to. Um, I think the closest I've ever come to it is, is conversations I've had with Ajahn Chah or Ajahn Tate. Um, I had the great privilege of living with them for a few years. Whether they were arahants or not, I don't know. Um, talking about whether somebody's an arahant or not, I find actually not really very suitable. It's a, to me, you know, the, the, the state of purity of somebody's heart is an intensely personal matter. Um, what I do have confidence in is that both both great monks who were certainly very well acquainted with reality and they knew what practice was about and and I was hugely privileged to spend time in their company. Whether they'd finished their work or not, I, I see as entirely their business. Um, and besides, my, my tie was never really up to even being vulgar enough to ask them such a question. But other people did ask them these questions, and somebody asked Ajahn Chah once, you know, um, whether he was an arahant. And uh, he said, well, you know, for me it's like being, um, being a tree. You know, that's my, my experience is like being a tree. I've got branches and leaves and berries and fruits and so on. And, and the birds come along and they sit on the branches and they eat the fruit. And some say it's sweet, some say it's sour. And they go on about whether they like it or dislike it and so on and so forth. He says, that's just the chattering of the birds, really. That's just what they do. So, you know, I'm just am what I am. You, know, you call me an arahant or not, that's really, you know, you can say what you like about it. Now, I think it's the same with the personality to say whether an arahant has a personality or not, really, I mean, you could, you could talk about the dynamics of an arahant's behaviour, and you could say, well, their personality is like this, or their personality is like that. But I'm speculating here, but I would imagine that that the arahant doesn't have a personality. Uh, personality is is a, is a way of talking about a behaviour or or activity or patterns of activity. So again, rather than what we have, I would suggest that what's important is how we have things. Again, Ajahn Chah was was talking about, uh, I remember hearing him talk about having and not having being the same thing. He said, make having, not having. Have, but don't have. Having and not having are the same thing. Hai me, mai me. Me, di, ya, hai, man, me. Make having, not having. And it's like this cup here. And say, actually, you can have this cup, or you can have this flashlight, but what you have to do is realize that you also don't have it. And when having and not having are the same thing, then you're free. Now, if we haven't practiced, that, that sounds like a bunch of nonsense, of course. But I think having practiced for a while, we can, we can, we can see the sense in that. In meditation, and you get a little peaceful and, and sitting there, present, alert. You're not spaced out in some kind of 
you know, dreamy world, head tilted back, just kind of... You're present in your body and impressions arise in the mind or feelings or sensations arise in the body and we can know they're there. You can be sitting and, for instance, I'm going to go and visit my mother in February next year and I can be sitting meditation and then the idea of going to see my mother can arise. Now, if I'm present, really present there, that image, that thought, that fantasy, that impression about my mother in New Zealand can arise in the mind and I can still be quite clear and quite calm and acknowledge its presence, in other words, have it. But there's also a sense of not having it. Because if I'm not careful, then I can get caught up in the impression of my mother and I can think about our relationship and I I can certainly dwell on all sorts of things from the past and I can speculate about the future and then I can become her son and and there's all sorts of complicated feelings around that and that's a different way of having it. That's a different way of having this impression of going to visit my mother. So there's having with attachment and there's having without attachment. And there's a huge difference. A huge difference. So I feel this is what Ajahn Chah was talking about. Make having and having the, the same thing. Have things, but don't have them. So I would expect that, that uh, an arahant could, you know, if you could question, if you could find one that could speak English, you might be hard-pressed, but if you could, and you could talk to them about their personality and um, I would imagine they probably could be quite articulate in talking about you know, tendencies of mind they have and so on and so forth. But there would be a very tangible, very obvious sense of equanimity. They would be having without having. They'd be having without grasping. And that's what makes a difference. So it's how we have these things that matters, I feel. So for an arahant, the characteristic of an arahant is that the heart is completely free from all tendencies of clinging. All manifestations of ignorance and conceit have been removed. And so, the, uh, in keeping with the Buddha's teaching, the understanding we have about such a, a, a consciousness, such a being, is that uh, all activity is governed by wisdom and compassion. That doesn't mean to say that you're going to like all these manifestations of wisdom and compassion. I think we could be in the company of an arahant and feel totally annoyed, dislike them. You know, they might, you know, they may have grown up in an area where they weren't taught proper hygiene and you know, they might have bad breath and they might have an unattractive accent or you know, they may not have washed their robes or something, and according to their particular conditioning, that's perfectly acceptable. Or they might even have a rather grubby sense of humour. You know, I know some people who were pretty much like Arahants, and they, <laughs> they used to employ, enjoy some very coarse jokes. You may not find that agreeable, and you, you might say, well, you know, he can't be an Arahant, he's, he's, he's got these, these uh, rather vulgar tendencies. Well, the Buddha said you can't tell an arahant by looking at the outside. And the outside is not just the, you know, the colour of their skin or 
their facial features. It's actually you know, everything that you can hear and see on the outside. You, know, you have to be an arahant to know an arahant. And, and some arahants, it's uh, recorded, uh, were, were thoroughly unattractive. You know, there was one occasion where there was a, a hunchback monk, a rather a grotesque-looking character, was getting around and some of the other monks, rather vain and probably stunningly good-looking, um, you know, like sort of Tom Cruise bikus, <laughs> you know, or Brad Pitt bikus, looking bikus, you know, getting around, and they were grumbling about this ugly. They were taking the Mickey out of this ugly hunchback bikku, and the Buddha said, "Rather, that's not a wise thing to do." Yeah, yeah. They couldn't tell he was an arahant. They didn't know he was an arahant from the outside. So having, but not having, and and as far as. Um, personality tendencies go. In our own case, this is to do with the other side of this question, what is the relationship between psychological development and spiritual unfolding? I suppose this has got a lot to do with how we use these words um, and, and all I can say is how I understand and how I use these words. Um, Psychological development, um, for me, is a way of talking about the natural process of development of of um, our mental capacities. And ideally, it's pretty much complete by the age of fifteen or sixteen. Ideally, um, not many of us live in an ideal world, or ideal situation, but uh, for me the realm of psychology is the structures of mind, the structures of mind that we live with, that we're equipped with, that we're conditioned with. And the realm of spiritual, the spiritual life is I suppose I think of it as, as a deeper dimension. It's, a, it's to do with the relationship we have with our psychological being. It's to do with our understanding of reality. So we're programmed, we're conditioned from the moment we're born or even in the womb, from the moment of conception. There's a there's a conditioning process that takes place of, of our physical nature, of our nervous system, of our mental processes, the experiences of birth, leave impressions on our psyche, and then the experiences, the contact we have with our primary carers. And certainly over the first four, five, six, seven years, there's a major uh, developmental process going on that, that will affect us for the rest of our life. This is conditioning the, the mental structures. And from the age of about seven, when there's some sort of a personality having developed and a sense of differentiation from the parent, and actually knowing some sense of individuality, from the age of seven onwards till about the age of 14, 15, 16, 17, there's this development going on to do with uh, recognizing what it means to be an individual living in the world, and, and so the personality develops accordingly. 
But from about that age onwards, from about, I would suggest from about the age of 16, 17 onwards, um, there are also some other questions start to emerge. Uh, when we start to recognize, for instance, our mortality, we start to question, you know, what, what, is, what is this life really about? What is death? Maybe that, around that age we start to see death and, and relationship. The passions are, are full-blown, start to fall in love. We have these amazing experiences, the mind-blowing experience of, of falling in love with somebody, becoming totally possessed and obsessed with another person. And, and certainly that's a different state of consciousness. Well, these days, of course, you can also start taking drugs and experiencing different states of consciousness. Well, not just these days, but also in, in primitive cultures, there were occasions for people during adolescence who were introduced, often introduced to different levels of consciousness with the use of drugs. The difference between those days and these days is that actually people were prepared properly for the experience of taking mescaline or peyote or, or whatever it was. And these days, of course, you do it listening to some music out of your head in a totally irresponsible situation, and we have very different experiences. Whatever, around the age of what we call adolescence, we, we start asking different questions, and, and at least intuitively we start to recognize that consciousness is not a fixed thing. And the very, the very issue of, you know, who am I? You know, you know okay, up until the age of seven there isn't a solid I and so around the age of seven there's a sense of some I and then this I gets shaped over the next seven or so years and then you start saying, well what is this I anyway? You know, I get very upset at times and even I might want to even kill somebody. I've fallen in love and they fell in love with me. I've got to do something with my life. Now these sort of questions don't occupy a nine-year-old usually, sort of mid to late adolescence and and so I would say these are spiritual questions. These are questions of what is the, what is the meaning of life? And um, they're not distinctly separate from psychological issues or psychological, the psychological dimension. They're still part of the same, the same being. But they are of a different dimension, I feel. And so they relate to each other and they're inevitable. It's inevitable that we will go through a process of psychological development and it's inevitable that these spiritual questions, these great questions of what is the meaning of life anyway, will emerge. Now how well we're prepared for these things is another matter. How well we develop psychologically depends on all sorts of issues, environmental issues, and relationship issues. And These days, of course, with the, the mobility of the family and people don't often don't grow up with their peer group anymore and and, and often also don't grow up with two parents and so there's all sorts of trust issues you know, people feel betrayed very early on in life and and uh, gender issues can get very confused and and so even though one may have finished what would be a normal stage of psychological development around mid or late adolescence there can be also loads of unfinished business now this is very important because sometimes the, the great spiritual questions of life arise and what is the meaning of life and, 
and around the age of, you know, say 21, 22, 23, and again, if I could speak about myself in coming across Buddhist meditation and, 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 and reading a little bit about Buddhism and this great feeling of, yes, at last there's something that I don't have to compromise myself to go along with. Uh, this, this requires no compromise. This invites questioning. I'm allowed to actually say that I love truth and that I really want to know truth more than anything else and, and there's no questions I'm not allowed to ask. And, and, and Buddhism invites this and so I'm, I willingly throw myself into this Buddhist practice and, and get taught meditation techniques and with all my will I focus on the end of my nose and I have these amazing blissful experiences and, and hugging trees and tears flowing down my cheek and just thinking I've got to become a monk and and you know heading off towards Asia where monks live and and then becoming a monk and then being taught to contemplate rotten corpses and evening chanting there's this rotten fetus up there in the front next to the shrine and there's a skeleton over there and you know you get fed pickled frogs and and you know while you're having your meal the lay people are sitting there chanting about old age sickness and death at the age of 23, having only just stopped taking drugs a few weeks beforehand. <laughs> you know, that's, now that's dangerous actually. That's, that's, that, this is a this little conflict here. The, the dimensions of my being were not in harmony. I would not say that I was psychologically prepared to address my spiritual questions in that way. And there were very serious consequences. I, I, a number of times I really thought that I was losing the plot and had anybody questioned me, they probably would have decided I had lost it. Unfortunately, uh, nobody asked the, the questions at the right time. and I'm thankful for that. Yeah. So I would suggest that these naturally occurring questions of what is the meaning of life uh, need to be addressed, but if we don't understand that there are, there is a psychological dimension, and that there, it can be we can be prepared or or unprepared in that dimension. If we don't recognise this, well, then we can perhaps make a mistake of of where we need to be paying attention. So I know for years, not just myself, but for many people, I've seen it happen that that um, they. Actually, what they're engaged with is, is a whole question of trust. That the, the relation, the capacity for trusting in life, was not properly developed. Now, to live in a trusting relationship is a, is a psychological issue. <coughs> and if we have experienced the suffering of betrayal early on in life, and then the capacity for living in trusting relationships, including trusting ourselves, is, is inhibited. That capacity is inhibited, is limited, and. And I would say that I've seen it uh, far too many times, uh, regrettably, that that monks um, who have strong faith in in the possibility of addressing their deep heart matters, their real spiritual questions, engage in their Buddhist practice wholeheartedly, wholemindedly, wholebodily, with conviction, with enthusiasm, and then they do experience real benefit. But then they come up against something, and this something means that they lose touch with their faith and their perception is expressed oftenly, often is expressed as, as I've lost faith, I just don't have faith anymore 
And when you lose faith, you don't have energy. You don't have energy, well, it's just a matter of time before you give up. And I, I've seen this happen many times. But I've also seen people actually move on from that state when they, they do some psychological work. Often this is what happens when monks and nuns leave the community. They'll find themselves a good therapist and do some, some uh, psychological work and address the issues of trust. And then when the capacity for trusting is increased and there's an, a fully functioning capacity for trusting, well then they find they can access their faith again. It wasn't that they lost faith, they lost touch with their faith. And why do they lose touch with their faith? Faith is a spiritual matter. Why do they lose trust? How do they lose, sorry, how, why do they lose touch or how do they lose touch with their faith? It was because of this incomplete development in the area of trust. So I'm pleased this question has been raised. I think it's a really important question. And, and the relationship between psychological development and spiritual unfolding um, is a very real question. Uh, I started off by saying that uh, I think it's got a lot to do with how, how we use these words, but however we use these words, I still think there's a real question that the structures of our mind, basically, is a psychological question. The reality, the nature of those structures is a spiritual question, in my view. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether we have healthy, well-prepared structures or not, if we don't understand the reality of those structures, then we take ourselves terribly seriously. Our ego may be fully rounded and totally charming and sparkling, but if we believe that it's the centre of the universe, well then we're going to have all the terrible problems that egoic existence brings us. But then, hopefully, the question arises, well, what is the meaning of life anyway? What is this sense of me? And that's the beginning of the spiritual inquiry. And then the relativity of the egoic existence is questioned. Now I would say for all of us in the investigation into the relativity of the egoic existence, we will come across psychological issues. And the skill, I feel, is to be agile enough. And again, this is why I keep speaking about going into practice gradually, not being in a hurry, not trying to crack it too quick and fix ourselves up, but humbly and gently and respectfully allowing the process to deepen naturally. And as we meet ourselves with resistance, where we find ourselves and we get stuck, where the flow suddenly ceases and we feel we're caught up in something, we're agile enough to actually change the way we relate to ourselves at that point. If we're too focused and too rigid and like I was talking last night about Ajahn Chan and meditation and getting there, getting there, he was in a hurry to get there and he was doing very well and then this image of crossing over the bridge and everything disappeared and he was left in this great big, what do I do now? Yeah. He had to learn actually what you do when you reach the edge and everything falls away is you just stand there. You don't keep doing what you've been doing. If we're too willful and too intense, we we just got this way of doing things. And, and when a change of tact is called for, we can't change. And so agility is not something that's mentioned in the Pali scriptures, as far as I know, specifically. But I would say that agility is a really important spiritual faculty. That, uh, that we when we meet ourselves in a point where we don't know how to let go of ourselves, that we're agile enough to actually change our tact at that point. 
And if what's called for is actually finding, you know, some psychotherapeutic help, well then, find it. It doesn't mean to say necessarily that what we need is another meditation retreat. We need to meditate on rotten corpses a bit longer. I've got to stop taking myself so seriously. I, I feel I'm possessed with guilt. I can't enjoy life. Well, that's because I take myself too seriously, so I should meditate on death more. And I shall go to a mortuary and look at corpses. Now, that's an example, possibly, of, of increasing the imbalance rather than fixing it. And, you know, this is not just a modern disease. I mean, this happened in the time of the Buddha as well. I mean, people were neurotic then as well, not just now. And the Buddha gave what he probably thought was, a, was a, an appropriate teaching to the monks on meditation on death and then went off and retreat in the forest and came back and half the monks were dead. That killed themselves and, um, because they actually lost perspective and, and they didn't have the agility factor developed. So when we get caught up in something, whatever it is, whether it's ill will or lust or guilt or fear, yes, determination, Yes, commitment. But also, as I was saying on the first night, let's not forget contentment and kindness. That if if we're being kindly in our effort, then we're not going to push too hard. When you're really up against something and you start to struggle and you feel yourself contracting to the struggle, then remember contentment and relax. And come back to just being kind and Last night there was a question uh, which I answered very briefly, you may remember. Is, Do you feel it's more, more effective to have relaxed retreat with short bits rather than a strictly enforced long set 10 hours sitting a day? And my answer was yes. And um, the reason for that is that um, I think agility is, is really, really important. And... Nobody else can teach us to be agile. Now, somebody else can teach us to sit for 10 hours. I couldn't, personally, because I don't have it in me. I, I, I hate being told what to do. Some of you might love it, and, and you'll have to go somewhere else, because you know, I, just, I, I, I have endured other people telling me what to do, uninvited, mind you, and um, I don't think it... You know, it taught me patience and determination and, and these things, but it didn't really... I don't think it really helped me all that much when it came down to it. What has really helped me is when I've lived with people who assumed that actually I could figure it out. They assumed that actually I had the ability to adapt and adjust because I really was interested. And I am interested. I'm really interested in reality. There's nothing more fascinating I find than reality than truth. There's lots of things I'm somewhat interested in. Uh, you know, music I can still find interesting. I hear the Grateful Dead just did a concert in California the other day. Now, some of you probably don't even know who the Grateful... In fact, I mentioned this the other day. I said, who? <laughs> the junior monks these days. They're not like they used to be. <laughs> you know, well, of course, you know, anybody who knows anything knows that Jerry Garcia, may he rest in peace, passed away a few years ago while he was recovering in a, 
in a uh, rehabilitation clinic. He had a heart attack, poor man. He has diabetes and drug addiction, and he had a heart attack and died. But the rest of the band had got together, and they called the other ones. And they're, they're doing a they're doing 15 gigs across America, and I would love to be there. <laughs> but you know, the Grateful Dead is not it really compared to truth. Now this is this is the difference between. You know what I was saying again on the first night. Our, our casual concerns, or you know, the things we're somewhat interested in, but the heart matters, the things we're really interested in. And and for me, the love of truth is the most important thing. That's a spiritual concern. Now, in pursuit of that love of truth, the realization of that love of truth, being able to hold the most, the most difficult paradoxes of life. The capacity for being able to hold the paradox, not the the clever ideas that I got out of a book that solve all life's problems and, and life's questions. No, that doesn't actually interest me very much. But the heart capacity to hold the great paradoxes of life and to exist and to live, to abide in not knowing consciously and to remain in that state, trusting that reality will reveal itself. That's something I find really interesting. However, to be able to do that, there does have to be psychological preparedness. And if in the process of addressing it, however you formulate it, you may, you may talk about it, I expect you would talk about your spiritual uh, endeavor somewhat differently. But when we, in pursuit of our own personal spiritual endeavor, we come across psychological issues, whether it's guilt or obsessive fear or other neurotic tendencies, to be agile enough, to be supple enough, to be kind enough, to be gentle enough, to recognize it and to pull back uh, and to question it in a different way. Yes, sometimes, as I was saying, determination and go there on our own, you know, like the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, till my bones break and my blood dries up, I'm not moving from the Bodhi tree. How many lifetimes did the Buddha live before he said that? Yeah. I don't know, I don't think it's recorded, but something like 84,000 or something. Yeah. That's as a bodhisattva. Yeah. Not just the average well-intentioned bloke. Yeah. So the Buddha was prepared to make that determination. Yeah. So recognizing our limitations is, is actually wisdom. Getting off on being focused and I'm going to crack it, I'm going to get there is not necessarily wise. There is a there is a time for that. But there's also, as again, as I said just the other night, talking about Ajahn Chah, he got two years he got stuck in that experience. And he said, you know, he said it was awful. For two years he said I was really stuck, really, really bad. But then I had the good fortune of coming across Ajahn Louis. And then eventually I got round to talking about my problem with Ajahn Louis. And in talking with, this, with Ajahn Louis about this, he said, I came to understand what was going on. So well, the reason he was telling this story was, he says, yes, sometimes it's right to just stick with it on your own, and at other times that's not right. It's time to actually go and talk to somebody. So yes, sometimes we, we embrace our spiritual endeavor and with commitment and focus, but then maybe there's also other times when we need to actually go and find a, a therapist. And uh, 
I would suggest that that with regards to these things, it's it's um, it's wise to prepare ourselves not just you know not just with regards to finding maybe a, you know, a, a psychotherapist if we need one, but to really be aware, to be alert of what's around, you know, where help is, what we need, to know in advance what our needs are. Okay, we we know we've got spiritual needs, and 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 all of us know there are resources, and that's good news. Uh, we need to know, and actually, what we also need is um, some physical advice. Now, I've seen people hammering away at their meditation when what they really needed was just some decent food. <laughs> I remember some of the, the places we lived in Thailand, some of the monks were having having these hallucinations in the morning, <laughs> which is a result of beriberi. <laughs> they thought they were having spiritual experiences. You know, there was there was no vitamin B in the food and they were having beriberi hallucinations and now you grow up in you know you grow up in Australia you don't expect to get beriberi. I'm thinking of one particular monk and here he was in Thailand suffering from beriberi and he didn't realise that he had beriberi. He thought he was having a spiritual experience. And um, so whether it's a decent diet or whether it's actually learning how to um, do some more physical exercise or breathing also you know, breathing is really important. The the breath is is the, when the body is breathing naturally, it keeps the body and mind in balance and in harmony. Some of the conditionings that we go through early on in life can imprint themselves not just on our mind mentally, but also on our body and our nervous system, and and this affects the breath. and And probably most of us have recognised at some stage or other how we hold our breath so as to contain our emotions. Now, when this becomes chronic, when this becomes habitual, it becomes unconscious, and we don't even know we're doing it. And and, and personally, I've I've found huge benefit in in addressing directly these this imprinting on the breathing and undoing it and releasing out of these habitual patterns and so the breath can flow freely again. I used to listen to these teachers in Thailand talking about focusing on the breath and all these amazing things they could do with their breath and as soon as I paid attention to the breath I just got a headache. And my solar plexus would contract and my throat would constrict and I did this for years and years and years before I found that actually you can also learn to breathe in a way whereby you can undo these habits, these patterns, these conditionings. And when the breath flows freely through the body, it's, it's pleasure. The breath is pleasure. And that's what these teachers were talking about, the pleasure of breathing and, and refreshing the body with the breath. And I didn't have a clue what they were talking about. And I hammered away at what I thought was mindfulness of breathing for years until I had the good fortune of discovering that actually you can undo these patterns and so really acquainting ourselves, yes, knowing what our spiritual needs are and finding resources, knowing what our physical needs are, including such things as breathing and diet, knowing what psychological needs we might have, psychotherapeutic needs and resources there are. And also, I think, and I think this is, I would consider really primary, is knowing who our community is. Knowing who our community is. In um, in New Zealand, the the Maori people um, have this expression "fanal," 
And it's, 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 it's not just your blood relations, it's not even just the people who, who live in your immediate neighborhood, but it's, it's your community. It's the people that you turn to when you need something. Or it's the people that you take somewhere when you've got something important happening. Like if you, you've got a job interview, you know, traditionally, and even these days, for a lot of Maori people, when they're going for an important interview, they'd always take somebody from their fun hour along. And say, well, who's this? <laughs> Didn't realize I was interviewing two people. Well, for the Maori people, this was normal. You know, you don't go to something important on your own. I mean, you know, we're not actually isolated individuals. You know, we're, we're, we live in community. Our ego is a function of our, of our social interactions. Unless you've grown up in, on an island somewhere on your own. And you know, for the rest of us, our ego, our sense of being somebody is a social function. And, if you've got an important, you know, something happening in life, well, you know, you take along an important person. That's normal. That's healthy. I'm going to the doctor on Thursday. I've got to have a uh, one of these things that grow on your head when you, you know, or on your skin when you get a little older and you have too much sun. And the doctor says, "Oh, I don't like the look of that. I think that should come off." And so I've got to go to see the doctor on Thursday, and he's going to cut this thing off my head, and you know, he's going to stick a needle in and. You know, I, I don't feel very good about it. So, you know, I'm taking somebody from my fun hour along. I'm taking Jayamano here. He's part of my fun hour. He, <laughs> he's going to be there whether the doctor likes it or not. He's going to be there in the room with me. I, you know, I don't want to be there alone. So knowing who our community is, knowing who you can ring up when you need somebody, somebody who is not going to just give you advice, God forbid, you know, when we need somebody to listen to us, we don't just want somebody who's dying to tell us what's wrong with us or how to fix ourselves up. Sometimes we all just need somebody who knows how to listen, somebody who is part of our community. And so I would say that for, for good health, um, it's wise to prepare ourselves in all these areas. Mm. And they're all to do with, with, with this, um, the relationship between psychological development and spiritual unfolding. As in my view, these are different dimensions of the same being, but in these dimensions interacting and unfolding, I think we need to prepare ourselves. It's not just something that's just going to happen. So I've been speaking for quite a long while, and there are still several questions. There's still this really important question about the four foundations of mindfulness which um, the person who asked it, I hope they found that book, which I encouraged them to read last night. But in case they didn't, I will speak about it tomorrow night. And uh, there's another important question here, which I want to deal with briefly, which is, what is the effective response to the boredom that the mind addicted to stimulus experiences when focusing on the breath? I don't want this person to have to go through another whole day feeling thoroughly bored <laughs> because it's, it's, it's really a waste of time. Becoming bored is a total waste of time and utterly unnecessary. Boredom, personally, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I sound like I'm an expert. I have very little familiarity with boredom. I've hardly ever been born because my body's so painful that I usually got something going on to feel bad about. <laughs> For people who have the misfortune to just sit there comfortably and get bored, 
I'm sorry for you, but <laughs> there is something you can do about it. And you have to get quite subtle. And again, it's a question of preparation. Don't wait until you get thoroughly bored. You know, as boredom starts to come on, don't just think, oh, I wish this wasn't happening, and oh my God, here we go again. Consider what, what's the reality of boredom? What's the truth of boredom? What, what, is, what actually is boredom? Not just, oh, go on, boredom. That's, that's, that's an initial impression. And I would suggest that, that if you do look at the reality of boredom and question, say, well, what is this, really? You'll find that, I don't want to answer it for you, but just to give you a hint, it's a subtle form of aversion. It's not gross resentment. You're not really angry about something. But you are a little bit annoyed that there's nothing interesting happening. And there is energy there. That's where the energy is. And because we don't see it, it goes toxic on us and puts us to sleep. And then we sit there and then the next thing we start to dribble. You know. <laughs> Bobbing up and down, dribbling for the next five days at the retreat. Yeah. Most ungraceful. And really unnecessary because there is energy there. You don't have any shortage of energy. It's how to locate it. So one way of locating it is to actually ask the question and recognize that to some degree you're a little irritated. There's nothing interesting happening as far as you're concerned. So another way to address it is you can make something interesting happen. And depending on what sort of person you are, um, find out what you're interested in. Myself, I, I'm really interested in suffering. I find suffering really interesting. There's a lot of it around, and it's not always wonderful to be interested in suffering because it's, it's, uh, it's painful, my own and other people's. But I can't pretend that I'm not interested in it. And so I find that if I bring to mind some really painful memories, really painful memories, really, really difficult periods of my life, and try to you know, bring up the images and try to feel them in my body, try to feel how, how I felt, or maybe how I feel. If your boredom's really acute, and you're really, really upset about it, well then there's a nice form of suffering. But if that doesn't do it, well then think of something else that bring suffering up in the mind, and then feeling this pain, feeling this sadness, this disappointment, this fear, and then carefully bringing to mind the image of somebody who you really care about, somebody who you really feel you've got a real heart connection with, somebody you have a, a real feeling of warmth and caring for. Imagining them suffering, like you right now. No, you suffered. Of course we're not doing that because we want them to suffer, of course not. But what happens in the moment that we think of our loved ones suffering, immediately the heart opens and there's this natural spontaneous wish, may they not suffer. In other words, we quicken the heart of compassion. The heart of compassion opens up. And, and if we can identify it, if we can give voice to it, note it and say, 
May they be free from suffering. May they not suffer. May they not have the experience of suffering. And feeling as we say it, as we think it, as we note it, as we identify it, feeling this feeling of really, really, really wishing that beings don't suffer. Feeling it in our whole body. And then identifying it in our minds. And knowing that this is compassion. And then there's energy again. And then we can build on that. We can develop on that. And and so the classic meditation on compassion is is to give rise to the feeling of compassion and compassionate thoughts that beings be free from suffering, starting with those that we care about. And so with this feeling awareness of the heart of compassion, start visualizing other people. Those that are quite neutral. Like, you know, the man who came during the meditation with his truck out there, you heard that truck pull up, he comes every Monday night, he's the mobile shop. And I don't know who he is. I said hello to him once, and you know, so I don't really like him or dislike him. Somebody neutral, or the postman. And then holding consciously to this this feeling of compassion, and generating that, giving rise to the mental thought, may beings be free from suffering. Then, very carefully, maybe bringing in images of people that we don't like, and seeing if we can hold that. So, in brief response to this important question about boredom, um, those two things I, you know, I can vouch for, um, they really do work. That One, to look into the reality, to see if you can become interested in the reality of boredom, what's actually going on there. Or two, to do something you're interested in. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <coughs>